Let's open our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and take up a further chapter in God's book of philosophy that he's given to us from the pen of King Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Because we have reviewed several times, we'll not review very much this morning at all, but get right into chapter 4. We have a lot we want to do today. And uh, we'll just go right into chapter 4 very quickly. The book of Ecclesiastes means the preacher. Solomon refers to himself as the preacher in the first couple of verses. He refers to himself as the preacher at the end of the book. He refers to himself as a master of assemblies, because when assemblies came together, they had a master. They had someone in charge of them to make sure an assembly is profitable. And he was one of those, and he taught the people knowledge by carefully chosen words. He set in order many proverbs. The Bible tells us he wrote 3,000. You only have a few of those in the book of Proverbs. He wrote 1,005 songs. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, a book of philosophy. He wrote the one song we do have in the Bible, the Song of Solomon. But the book of philosophy is called Ecclesiastes. And philosophy is the study. It's, a, it's supposed to call itself a science. The science that seeks for the purpose of man. What is man? Why is he here? What can he do to find fulfillment? How should he relate to other men? What is his purpose? purpose? What is the profit of life? Why live? What do we do with pain? Uh, How do we avoid trouble? Philosophy. There have been many philosophers in the world. The Bible talks about some of those philosophers. Paul ran into some of them in the city of Athens. Acts chapter 17 tells us about them. Stoicism and Epicureanism are both mentioned there as two philosophies by name that the Apostle Paul encountered, and he dealt with them as we should deal with them from a basis of a worldview that God is the creator of heaven and earth and that they don't have a clue as to what they're talking about. The Bible says to the law and to the prophets, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. That's what the Bible says about itself. But the book of Ecclesiastes, it's short, very short, but he covers a lot of ground and covers a lot of subjects in just a few pages. In chapter 4, we have five lessons. I'll read the first three verses for the first lesson. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they, which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Many sections of the book of Ecclesiastes are written from a natural viewpoint, and you better keep that in mind when you read the book. As I've mentioned to you, many atheists have been made in the book of Ecclesiastes, because unless you read it carefully, you would think that life is absolutely hopeless. But it's not hopeless. He just doesn't give all the answers as he works his way toward his final conclusion in chapter 12. Here he says, it'd be better to be dead than to be alive when considering the pain and trouble and oppression that is visible in the world. 
He goes further in verse 3 to say, Yea, better than the dead or the living are those that never lived at all. Because they never would have seen the oppression that is done on earth. And this is a philosophical question. Why is there so much evil? There's so much evil that Solomon would say, it'd be better to be dead than alive. He would say, better than that, it would be better not to have lived at all, because there's so much oppression, and on the side of the oppressors there is power, and on the side of the oppressed there's no comforter. There's a lot of misery. There's a lot of abuse in the world, and when viewed from a natural standpoint, it's overwhelming. But now we don't view it from a natural standpoint, so we want to consider this very quickly and remind ourselves of how we view evil in the world. But from Solomon's viewpoint, it was enough to overwhelm him. Think about a little bit of evil. Despotic rulers, Mao Zedong of China, in his cultural revolution and his experimentation with how to produce, killed 20 to 60 million Chinese during the time that he was alive because of the famines he created by thinking he could orchestrate men better than simply letting their bellies motivate them. The best way to get a man to work hard is to get him hungry. You cannot socialize work. You cannot legislate work. A man will work because his belly button is getting closer to his spinal column. And every half inch that they move toward each other, he takes on greater energy and strength. The Bible tells us that. A man works to, to feed his belly. Well, Mao Zedong thought he could legislate it and killed 20 to 60 million. If you don't believe me, go home and type in one of his Zedong names and find out what he did to the Chinese people. You can read about Joseph Stalin and the purges he had in Russia. You can read about Adolf Hitler and the purges he had in Germany. You can read about Idi Amin, the purges he had in Uganda. You can read about oppression. And there was power on the side of the oppressors, but there was no comforter. You can read about ambitious rulers and what they did to other nations. You can read about Genghis Khan and others who invaded all the way to the, in, into Europe and persecuted and tortured and killed many. Husbands abuse wives. Thousands of wives are killed every year in, in Russia. They're a violent society. You can read about it. Husbands abuse wives in our own nation. Fathers and mothers abuse children at times in all sorts of different ways. You can think of those that bother you the most. Because that's what we're talking about right here. In these three verses are the abuse issues that bother you. Because when you look at them, you can see so much power on the part of the oppressor and no comforter for the one being oppressed, and it's overwhelming. It's not overwhelming to us, but it's overwhelming from a natural standpoint. Masters abuse, wives can abuse husbands. Many wives abuse their husbands by defrauding them. They abuse their husbands by being overbearing, nitpicking, irritating, contentious, angry, odious women. They drive men crazy. The Bible says the earth cannot stand an odious woman. The noise of the clatter that she puts up from her mouth is one of the four things that Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 30 that the earth cannot bear. She is unbearable. So don't, I'm trying to be fair. Husbands abuse wives and wives abuse husbands. Both are wrong. 
Both are corrected if we were to live by the Bible. Masters abuse servants. There's working conditions that have existed in the history of the world, exist right now in places where servants are abused by their masters simply for a profit. Magistrates abuse citizens. Teachers abuse students. Let's take abortion for a moment. A mother abuses her own child. She has an unborn child, an unborn baby, in her uterus or womb. And she goes and visits an abortion clinic where a doctor or staff member inserts into her a high-powered suction wand. Let's just call it a little vacuum cleaner. You can go on YouTube and see some of this that I'm telling you about. You can go on Google and see some of this in video form. You can watch that little suction wand enter the uterus and have that baby flee with all of its might to the other end of the womb, trying to escape that suction wand that eventually gets an arm and rips the arm off and sucks it out of the woman. And then other bodily parts. There's no comforter from a natural standpoint for the little baby. There's lots of power on the side of the doctor with the suction wand. Solomon saw this. Look, he said, I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And I saw so much oppression. And there was no power with, the, with those that were oppressed. And they had no comforter. But there was lots of power with those that did the oppressing. The oppressing has affected nations. It's killed millions. We've killed millions in this country by abortion. There was no comforter for the little baby. There was lots of power on the part of those that took the lives of unborn children. Why is there all this evil? Why do men do such terrible things toward each other? Because there isn't an answer from a natural standpoint. It's overwhelming. Life is terrible. Life in this world is terrible. People are terrible. It'd be better not to be alive than to know some of these things that go on. In fact, it'd be better if you didn't even live, is what Solomon reasoned. Men, because they don't have answers, try to legislate abuse away. You can't legislate abuse away. You can pass all the laws you want, and the abuse continues to take place in various forms and in hidden places. They try to educate it away. Has the increase in education in the last hundred years helped this nation with, helped this world and this nation with less abuse? There hasn't been a decline. There's been an increase. We didn't abort babies until 35 years ago. You can't educate it away. You can't explain it away because they don't have any understanding to the law and to the prophets. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Amen. So they have no answers. So from Solomon's standpoint, he had the best answer. It'd be, better not to, it'd be better to be dead, or it would be better to have never lived. When you look at all the oppression, sexual abuse of little children, physical abuse of little children, on and on, we could make the list long. What is the answer for it all? Solomon doesn't give us the answer here. He gives us a natural view that it's so overwhelming when you consider it all that you wish you weren't even living to know about it. But I want to tell you, he's going to give us the answer. 
If you look up your page to chapter 3 and verse 17, we have one of the answers. Solomon hints at answers because the answers are not in the book of Ecclesiastes for a reason. Solomon wants to tear us down and all men down by considering life from a natural viewpoint. And from a natural viewpoint, life is hopeless, life is vain, and it is vexation of spirit. Not only is it empty and profitless, but there's a whole lot of pain finding out that it's empty and profitless. The answers are found elsewhere in the Bible. There's no Redeemer presented in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's only trouble in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the last two verses, he'll give us a summary that leads us to the rest of the Bible. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And with that direction, we go to the rest of the Bible, we meet a Redeemer, we find out all the answers. But there's a few hints in Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Solomon saw wickedness and iniquity in the places of judgment and righteousness, and he realized that God allows these things to happen, but he will judge them. Go to the next chapter after 4. To chapter 5 and verse 8. And this is a verse that we use often because it's this verse you ought to keep in mind every time you read about oppression. Ecclesiastes 5, 8. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. There is one singular male pronoun representing our God that is higher than the highest, and he regardeth. He regards those little babies I just described. He regards persecuted and abused children. He regards persecuted and abused husbands or wives. He regards nations that have rulers over them that destroy and make mayhem from a nation. He regards... There is so much comfort in Ecclesiastes 5.8 to know that no matter how much power, and some of those men that I listed had absolute despotic power in the nations they ruled, but there is one higher than they. Amen. <clears throat> and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and He regards. He will judge, and He will deliver. He is merciful, and He is great. He has the keys of death and of hell. And so we take comfort in chapter 5 and verse 8, as it tells us, when we see oppression, how we should view it spiritually. The Bible is such a great, wonderful book. It tells us that the poor and helpless in this world are to be protected by Christians. The Bible goes and tells us that God is a judge of the widow and the fatherless. When a man is taken away from a family, God intervenes. God will take care of them. It is throughout the Bible in both Testaments. And the commandment of the law of Moses was for the saints of God to take care of those widows and to take care of those fatherless children. And that extends into the New Testament. The Bible, some think, is just a spiritual, mysterious book. In James chapter 1 and verse 27, it says pure religion. Pure religion. This is the pure religion of Christianity. To be unspotted from the world 
and to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Now, that's a pretty practical statement. But that's the word of God, both testaments. He is a judge of the widow and the fatherless. He will protect them. The Bible is so careful about you taking advantage of the weak. If you were to chance upon a bird's nest when you were in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, they think, was just so violent. It's no different than the New Testament. God hasn't changed a whit in either Testament, except in his form of worship. But when you were out walking through the woods and you chanced upon a bird's nest and the mother was sitting upon her young or her mother, the mother was sitting upon the eggs, you couldn't take both. If your family needed some food, you could take the mother. But if you took the mother, you had to leave the eggs. If you took the eggs, you had to leave the mother. You couldn't take the dam with her young, is what the Bible says. The Bible has this this statement three times. Thou shalt not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. You are to never boil a kid, which is a small young goat, in its mother's milk. Because God did not want you doing something that was so cruel, even though you could take the mother's milk and drink it. Goat's milk is promoted in the Bible. Or you could take the little kid and cook it. But you couldn't take them, you couldn't boil, you couldn't seethe or boil the kid in its mother's milk. God just thought that was cruel. And there's some of these verses in the Bible that tip us off that there is a place for mercy and gentleness. Do you know the Bible says that a good man showeth mercy to his beast? God expects you to take care of any animal that you have in your possession. Horses were to be taken care of and not to be abused. That's all in the Bible. Because there's a God that defends against cruelty and oppression. There is lesson number one. That's all the time we have for it. When you see oppression, we have an answer. It's found throughout the Bible that there's a God that protects those who are in trouble and who are weak. And God commands us, whether we are lowly citizens, commoners, or whether we are kings, that we are to open our mouths for all that are oppressed. Proverbs chapter 31 tells the king that there by his mother. King Lemuel was taught by his mother to open his mouth and defend all those that needed to be defended. We come to lesson number two. It's in the next three verses. Verses four through six. Again, I considered all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. This second lesson of the chapter 4 is three considerations or three aspects of a proper work ethic. Solomon considered. He looked at men who worked hard who worked faithfully, who were noble, who did the right thing on the job. He saw how hard they worked, that they were noble, they did every right work, and they ended up getting envied for it. You say, are you serious? Would people envy someone that does what is right? Think about a few. How about Joseph? Was Joseph envied of his brothers? Because he was a good son. And because his father loved him. Because he was the son of Rachel. He was envied of his brothers. We have studied the life of Joseph very carefully. And we know what a faithful son he was. 
But he was envied because of that. How about David? David was the most loyal and most helpful and most dedicated servant King Saul could ever dream of having, let alone actually have. And yet, did King Saul envy David? He envied him. He should have just promoted him. Because if you had David working for you, you were going to go somewhere. The Bible tells us that David behaved himself wisely whithersoever he went. And because he behaved himself wisely, Saul resented him because Saul wasn't wise. But if you're not wise and you've got someone wise that wants to work for you, promote him. Give him an increase. Let him work for you. But no, he was envied. How about Daniel? Daniel in the reign of Darius, the Mede. Remember, his colleagues had a law passed to persecute him for his religion. So Daniel was envied for every right work. Daniel was envied for all the years he put in for the Babylonian and the Persian and and Mede governments. There are some examples from the Bible. The first point about a good work ethic is in in verse 1, that a man can work hard, he can work nobly, he can work virtuously, and he ends up getting envied by his neighbor, which is a terrible thing. So Solomon says right there in the verse, this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Remember, he's looking at things from a natural viewpoint. If we look at things from a spiritual viewpoint, we would say, who cares what my neighbor thinks? As long as I'm pleasing God, that's all that matters. Because the Bible tells servants to work with a single heart for the Lord. So you don't care what anybody else thinks. But from a natural standpoint, I work hard, I work right, I work smart, I work nobly, and I get envied for it. So Solomon called it vanity and vexation of spirit. Man's proud heart won't let you work hard and work virtuously without envying you for it. And that should never set you back. Because as Christians, we want to please the Lord anyway. The next verse is another way of working. Well, if when I work hard, I get envied from my neighbor, I might as well just not work hard. Well, the Lord has something to say about that in the next verse. Verse 5, the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Now, this is obviously a metaphor because people don't take a knife and fork and carve off their own flesh and eat it, at least not very often. So here we have a metaphor describing what a slugger does. This is a man who doesn't work as hard as he should. He ends up destroying his own life. He consumes his own flesh. He He folds his hands together. Oh, it's been such a hard day. You know, if he's got one of those pocketed sweatshirts, he's got his hands in there, folding them together. If he's in bed, he's good. Come on now. You're all looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You got your hands folded together. Solomon makes fun of this often. Solomon says a sluggard is so lazy he can't even put forth the effort to get his hand from his plate to his mouth. He folds his hands together and does nothing. He may even fold his hands together in prayer and say, Lord, provide me a job. Please take care of my needs. Do you know how the Lord has purposed for you to take care of your needs? Get up and get to work. That's how. The Bible teaches a very strong work ethic in both Testaments. 
The diligent hand shall be made fat. The diligent hand shall bear rule. The slothful shall end up in poverty. A man that plows his field is going to have plenty of bread. The Bible teaches it over and over in the New Testament. Not slothful in business. But that's Romans chapter 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When it's dealing with real sanctification. Is to learn a business and to work it good with your own hands. But this verse here. Solomon looked at travail. He looked at labor. The first thing, a man works good, the man works hard, he gets envied. Then there's another extreme. There's a man who doesn't do anything at all, and he's destroying himself. Because if a man doesn't work hard, he is ruining his family. There is no way around it. You cannot cheat. If you do not work hard, you ruin your own family, you consume your own estate. You will never amount to anything. Your family won't amount to anything. It is hard work. And the Bible teaches it in both Testaments. Verse 5 is out for a Christian. There is no nation on earth that has a work ethic as high and as good as the work ethic taught in the Bible for Christians of all nations. The work ethic taught in the Bible is great. The Lord Jesus Christ had a work to do and He worked while it was day. He said the night cometh when no man can work. He set His face to go to Jerusalem. His work was to die for us. He finished the work that God gave him to do, the Bible tells us. We come to verse 6. This is one of Solomon's comparisons and priorities. Now, I'm simple, and I love it when the Bible tells me that one thing is better than another thing. That way I can compare the two and make a decision that pleases God. And here we have one of those cases in verse 6. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. It'd be better to have a little bit of food that you could hold in a hand and to have quietness with it. That means your life is not upset. That means you are not angry. That means there is not so much confusion and worry and anxiety in your home, but you have a little bit to eat. That kind of a life. A moderate, modest amount of stuff with a happy, contented, quiet, peaceable life is better. Then both hands full, and as it says here in this sixth verse, with travail and vexation of spirit. There are men who are workaholics. There are men who are obsessed with getting, getting ahead, getting more stuff. And their lives are full of vexation and travail. And though they may end up with both hands full, their lifestyle and their choice is not as good as the choice to be content with a little that you have worked hard for, but you have quietness and peace in your life. Three thoughts about labor. See, philosophy has to deal with labor. Because labor is what you do more than anything else except sleep. It's the second biggest part of your life. And so Solomon, for three verses, deals with labor. And he will deal with it again. The first point he makes is that a man can be envied for working hard and for working right. The second point he makes is, is a sluggard is stupid and is consuming his whole life. He is wasting and ruining his life. Third, the best choice is to be content with a quiet, peaceable life with some stuff rather than both hands full, but a messed up life because you have, are full of vexation for pursuing riches. If you've read the book of Proverbs, and you have, you know that Solomon has many more of these better comparison verses. 
where it is better to have a dry morsel. I call that a saltine cracker. It's better to have a dry morsel and quietness therewith than to have a stalled ox. That's filet mignon, but have hatred or trouble therewith. I mean, there's all these comparisons, and bless the God of heaven, he makes it that simple for us. Right here in these three verses, three aspects of labor. Let's go to the next lesson, verses 7 through 12. Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, For whom do I labor, and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Lesson number three in Ecclesiastes chapter four. Human companionship and human society are very valuable things. And loners are stupid and self-destructive. Being a loner is not the way God made you. Being a loner is because you had poor parents that did not teach you how to love your neighbor as yourself. Being a loner is because you have developed bad habits and haven't overthrown them. Being a loner is because you won't get out of your comfort zone and be what God wants you to be. A loner is stupid and destructive. He will never amount to much at all. And for a loner that goes to work and accumulates a savings account, that is really crazy, Solomon is telling us. Because he says in verse 8, there is one alone. Here's a single person. He doesn't have a child. He doesn't have a brother. He doesn't have anyone. He's all by himself, but he goes to work every day. He builds his bank account. And Solomon says, that is ridiculous. Why doesn't he ask himself, why am I doing this? Because there isn't a reason to do it unless you have someone else to do it for. Now, for those of you whose feelings I've already hurt, because you're a loner. By nature, I am a loner. By nature, I'll tell you right now, and all of you know this, I don't like people. (laughs) By nature, I'd rather sit in my office. I would like my wife to bring me something to eat about every three hours. So I'm not, I'm not entirely a loner, am I? I? I know about being a loner. People wear me out. The expression I have is they suck the life out of my soul. That's what my wife gets to hear once in a while. And she says it to me too. I know about being a loner, so I'm going to say all that just to make you feel a little more comfortable. Now let me go back to making you feel uncomfortable. Two are better than one. Companionship and friends and brethren, remember Psalm 122? For my companions' sakes and for my brethren's sakes, I will now say, peace be within thy board. Wasn't that good? See, the Bible fits together because it has one author. 
one author. But right now, Solomon is looking at one of the vanities he saw in life, and that was people who are alone. Being lonely is terrible. You say, well, I like being lonely. I know I said that too, but that's just stupid. You're deceived. You're ignorant. You're perverse. You're froward. Because this is wisdom right here. Two are better than one, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's better than two. And to have a church of brethren is a wonderful blessing. To have a marriage and to have a family, to have brothers and sisters, some that may be blood brothers and some that may be chosen brothers. Some may be your father's friends. The Bible addresses all of them as being a very good thing. Here's a man that's going to work. He's not content. So he keeps accumulating because nobody's consuming it. I mean, one person by himself can't consume very much. Your bed can only be so big to sleep in. You only need a table so big to eat off from. You only need so big of a car to get to work. Here's one man, but he just keeps on working. But he doesn't stop to ask himself, according to verse 8, For whom do I labor? Why am I working so hard and bereaving my soul of good? It's perverse. Because two are better than one. Now, very quickly, and I've taught this so many times. Do you remember it's, it's been two whole years since I taught you about the desert locust? Does anybody remember? Yep. What, what's he called in his one stage when he won't get near any other locust? Solitarius. What's he called when God changes him because there's not enough food to go around and they start bumping into each other and their legs rub together? And they go through a complete metamorphosis into a different color and shape. And all of a sudden, they all want to be together. Then he is called gregarious. That's the scientific name for what Solomon said. The locusts go forth by bands, though they do not have a king. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 27. Isn't that wonderful? Remember where Solomon in Proverbs chapter 30 said we can learn wisdom from little things? And one of the little things is the grasshopper called the desert locust. That when there's plenty of food, they don't like each other. They stay far away from each other. But as soon as there's a lack of food and they get closer and closer together and they start rubbing each other, they totally change. And then you've got a billion desert locusts flying together without a king or leader because God made them gregarious and Solomon picked that up. To teach us that being together as a group is better than being alone in a park. And so we have it here as well. Two are better than one. Four reasons. This is a great book of philosophy. You want to talk about relationships? Here are four reasons why relationships are great. Verse 9 has reason one. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. The first reason to have friends, companions, and to be part of some group or society is because there's a reward for your labor. When you work hard and you get a promotion, the best part of it is sharing it with someone else. When you have a great meal, the best part of it is sharing it with someone else. What if you had a great, great meal delivered to that office I just talked about, where you sit by yourself in your little cave, you're sitting there by yourself and you have this great filet mignon, crab-stuffed scallops, delivered in there to you, for you to eat by yourself. Just give me a grilled cheese sandwich if I'm in there by myself. It's when, it's when I'm with you, the people that I don't like. It's when I'm with you that I want to have a good meal. You all know what I mean. Isn't, isn't that when you really want a good meal, to share it with someone else? 
It changes things. Whenever Sherry and I are on vacation and we're enjoying a good meal, after just a few minutes, I'm antsy and uncomfortable being there. I don't like enjoying this because I wish there were other people here to share it with us. She wishes sometimes I'd be content with just her. But do you know what I mean? It's right here in that ninth verse. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. To go to work every day is hard. It's called bereaving yourself of good in verse 8. That's hard work. That's what it's called. Why am I doing this to myself? But when you have someone to come home to at night and share a pay increase, share a paycheck, share a bonus, share an accomplishment, that makes it worthwhile. Life's exciting that way because two are better than one. The other reason is in, another reason is in verse 10. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. The second reason we want friends, companions, marriage, and so forth, is so that we can enjoy the help that another person can provide us by lifting us up when we fall. You can fall physically, and a person can help you up off the ground. You can fall financially. Another person can help you up by a loan or helping, co-signing a loan, whatever. They can help you. You can fall emotionally. Another person can encourage you. You can, be, can, you can fall in confusion. And a friend can help straighten things out in your mind. All the benefits of friendship, of lifting another up when they fall. We don't have it when we're alone. So the loner never amounts to much. Because he never gets lifted up out of his troubles. He just stays in them. And he's a loner because he doesn't even recognize them. We recognize it. It's wonderful to have someone to lift you up. I want to be that kind of a friend for every one of you. And I need that kind of a friend. We all need that. That's what every joint supplies in a church body. We help each other up when we fall. And we will fall. In all sorts of different ways. Verse 11. Again. Here's a third reason why two are better than one. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? I call this synergy. Synergy is that when things are put together, they make a better result than when they are apart. Synergy is that the value of two things put together are greater than the sum of their parts. Hydrogen put with a little bit of oxygen makes a pretty neat stuff, doesn't it? What is that neat stuff? Water. Hydrogen by itself. Would you like a glass of hydrogen? Would you like a glass of oxygen? Would you like the two combined? It's water. H2O. That's a chemical analogy. I'm not very good at analogies. I just love this verse right here. If two lie together, then they have heat. I have said before, if you're in a plane and it crashes in the Andes Mountains or or on the side of Mount Everest, and it's very, very cold, the way for the passengers of that plane to survive are to huddle and cuddle. It doesn't matter if you haven't met him before, guys. (laughs) Huddle and cuddle. Because if you're together, you will survive a whole lot longer. Now think about, and I've gone through this so many times, but I want you to always think about it, because it's here in this verse. How can you have heat if you're lying alone? Now if you have two people in a twin-seated in a twin plane, a two-seater plane, 
and they crash that plane, and they huddle and cuddle, there is no increase in heat. You have the one body of person A producing heat, and you have the body of person B producing heat. There's no increase in heat. But by the two of them coming together, they survive off each other's heat. Because the heat that's being lost from person A is absorbed by person B. And the heat being lost by person B is being absorbed by person A. They survive longer. Synergy is when we come together with all the different gifts, personalities, temperaments, education, economic ability that is in a church, and we all do our parts together, all those parts coming together into a body is far more effective than those parts out there by themselves. Jerry was trying to make a point to you earlier today. A foot, if you cut my foot off by itself and set it over there, it's not worth very much. It can't do anything. Or my hand. Or my eye. Take this little muscle mucus membrane here called my eyeball and set it over there on the table. Even though it may be able to take in reflections and images inside it, there's no brain behind it to recognize what it's looking at. It's all because of our body is connected together. That's why two are better than one. My wife has a very different outlook on life than I do. Aren't you all glad? My children are. She has a very different outlook on life than I have. She looks at things very differently. Sometimes I wish she looked at things my way. Sometimes she wishes I looked at things her way. But when two come together, I get that extra look at life. So what do you, what do you think? She'll tell me and... You know, it's hard because we're used to thinking the way that we, that God made us. But by two coming together, we have a better perspective, a broader perspective than we would otherwise. This is a book of philosophy. You can't find anything, any book, in any library, in any language that can match this. This book is so short, and yet it covers so much in a few words. This is the book of the God of heaven. And it's wonderful. The fourth reason why we need to be together in verse 12, and if one prevail against him, if you have an enemy that can whip you, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Verse 12 is, is the fourth reason why friends are good. It's because if you have an enemy that can whip you, if you've got some people you can call on for the playground, you can be defended and not get whipped. So it's wonderful to have friends to help against the common enemy. Are you maximizing your friends? The first friend we all have that are married is your wife. How well does your wife or your husband know you? How well do you communicate with them? How close are you? Are you with them every day? Do you utilize them? Do you ask your spouse? Do you tell your spouse what you're thinking? Do you tell your spouse what's happening to you to get the other perspective from the other spouse? This is part of using the wisdom of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We don't want to read these verses and just have an intellectual exercise of seeing Solomon's wisdom. How do we put this into practice? Do you talk to your wife? Do you tell your wife what you're facing? Do you tell your wife what you fear? Do you tell your wife where you're confused and you don't know what to do? Do you get some input? Wife, do you talk to your husband? Two are better than one if they function together. Two are not better than one just because they live under the same roof. Do you use the church like you should? The church is a band of brothers. It's a band of sisters. 
We can help one another. You live off by yourself. We watch it. We can see it. You'll never amount to anything. It's impossible because you by yourself are nothing. You're just one part. You're, take the best part of my body. There aren't, there aren't very many. But take the best part of my body or take the best part of your body, remove it from the body, it's worthless. Right. It's only as part of the body. If you are on the outside of the nucleus of the church, if you're just one of those ranging particles outside the tight, compacted part of the body, you don't benefit. We'll get along without you because we're all going to stick together. But we would like your contribution. Because it's by that which every joint supplies, as we had read to us from Ephesians chapter 4, that makes a church successful. That's the third lesson in in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You want to build your relationships and you want to keep them. Because to go to work, whether it's work Monday through Friday, or whether it's spiritual work on the Lord's Day, you want to share it with others. There's a reward for your labor. So you want to build relationships. Solomon was very plain about it. In Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 17, he says, A brother is born for adversity. You have a brother, you have a companion for troublous times. So that you have someone that will stick by you when there's trouble in your life. Proverbs 27 and verse 10 says, Don't you dare lose your father's friend. You make sure your father's friend is more important to you than even your brother. Because a father's friend that is close by is better than a brother that's at a distance. The Bible also says, for a man to have friends, he must show himself friendly. If you don't have very many friends, it's not our fault, it's your fault. But of course, loners always like to blame it on other people. Well, they just don't love me enough. They don't come after me enough. Well, you've made it impossible. Don't blame anyone else, blame yourself. The Bible's very plain about it. A man that shows himself friendly has lots of friends. A friendly man has more friends than he can handle. Are you utilizing what God gave you? Let's go to the fourth lesson in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. The lesson here, the fourth lesson of the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes, is the nature and the superiority of wisdom to folly in rulers. Anyone in a position of authority had better be seeking wisdom because wisdom is necessary to rule well. Wisdom will make you prosper if you'll seek it and pursue it. Folly will destroy you. There is a great reversal of fortune in these two verses based on wisdom. And Solomon makes the case very extreme to make the point plain. His extreme comparison in verse 13 is a poor child. Now let's take someone very young, not educated, not established, not experienced, and he's poor. Now that's got a lot against you. The Bible doesn't know anything about discrimination. Because any person that will apply himself well is going to advance. Cream always rises to the top, whether it's goat's milk or cow milk. Cream rises. And cream in the Bible is the one who lives wisely, the one who applies wisdom. And so here we have a child, young, 
in age, young in education, young in experience, and he's poor. He's got everything against him. In fact, the next verse tells us he's in prison. So he comes out of obscurity. And then we have a king. And the next verse tells us that king was born to his kingdom. He was the rightful king. He had all the legitimacy to be the next king. And that king is old. He's experienced. He's educated. He's in an office. He's dignified. But he is foolish. You know what Solomon said? Better is that poor child that is wise than that old king who is not wise and who shows his foolishness by no longer being admonished. The book of Proverbs teaches us that one of the greatest character traits is your willingness to be corrected. Your willingness, your ability to be instructed. Your willingness to accept a warning from someone else. That is one of the great keys of wisdom. It is a fool that thinks he's wiser than his counselors and that doesn't take instruction or correction. Proverbs says it over and over again that the mark of wisdom is the ability to bow down your ear and hear the sayings of the wise and humble yourself and to hearken and to retain the instruction and correction others give you. That's wisdom. This king won't do it anymore. He has counselors around him, but he won't listen. And so a little child, young, uneducated, inexperienced, poor, can surpass the king who is rightfully on the throne of the nation because of the superiority of wisdom to folly. Verse 14, when it says, For out of prison he cometh to reign is the poor child, not the king, the poor child. The king's already reigning. Can you think of an example in the Bible of this very thing happening? Joseph. Can you think of a man that was born to the throne losing his kingdom? Very Rehoboam. Solomon's almost like a prophet here, describing what's going to happen to his own son. Because he wouldn't be admonished by the counselors of his father who told him, if you'll back off just a little bit on these people, they'll serve you forever. Better is a poor and wise child. We're talking about the nature of wisdom. What is the nature of wisdom? It's willing to be admonished. What is the superiority of wisdom? A child with wisdom, though he might be poor, though he might come out of prison, though he might be uneducated and inexperienced, he can surpass a king who loses his wisdom and follows folly and will no longer be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, the poor child. Whereas also he that is born in his kingdom, there's the, the old king, becometh poor. He loses what he once had. So it's a great reversal of fortune by a poor child practicing wisdom and an old king practicing folly. The one passes the other. The one's in the elevator on the way down, the king, and the young child is on his way up in another elevator and they pass each other and they're promoted that way. Joseph passed all of his brothers. Right. Joseph passed all of those on the fast track in Egypt. When Pharaoh listened to Joseph for just a little while, he turned to all the MBAs in his kingdom that were gathered around the throne as they dealt with that king's dream. And he said to all those MBAs, is there anyone in our kingdom like this man? 
Do you know what they had to say? Oh, it hurt them so bad. No, Pharaoh, there's no one like this man. Go read it. How about Daniel? How much better was he than the other MBA fast track men that were in the school for Nebuchadnezzar? Ten times. So verses 13 and 14 are telling us we want to pursue wisdom. Do you read the, pro- do you read the Proverbs and the Proverb commentary every day? Do you read the book of Proverbs? Do you try to assimilate it? Do you try to take it in and apply it? Do you take it and say, I can change this part of my life by doing this proverb better? The man who learns wisdom is going up. The man who wants to continue in the habits your parents taught you and the habits that you've learned and in what this world wants to teach and not learn the wisdom of Proverbs, you're going down. That's what verses 13 and 14 are talking about with the emphasis on rulers. Because someone in authority had certainly better have wisdom because he is living for a whole lot of other people beside himself. Last lesson, verse 15. I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity And vexation of spirit. This fifth lesson is Solomon's concern and the vexing thought to his heart about political succession. How do we transition from one king to the next? How do we transition from one boss to the next? Because the higher the authority, the slipperier the slope that man is upon. And a king finds it very difficult for a transition of authority. So there's two verses here on political theory or political science about the transition of a reign. I considered all the living which walk under the sun. That's the present generation. In the next verse, he says, I also considered all them that came before them, and I'm considering all them that will come after them. And what is the problem with all three generations? They will not rejoice in him. Singular male pronoun. In who? In the second child that is going to take the place of the ruler. The second child doesn't mean that there's two children and the second one's going to get the throne. The word second means the one second in charge. The one second to reign. The heir apparent. We use the words heir apparent to mean the second in a kingdom. And in this case, it's a child because it's the king's son. The second child is the heir apparent who is the son of the king. And the king is thinking about how hard he has had to work to establish his reign. And as he thinks about how do I transition it to my son, he realizes as he considers all men of all generations that it's going to be very difficult because no matter how good of a king he was, they will not rejoice in his son. Was that true with Rehoboam? Was it true with David? What, what's the lesson we can get of this? You want, you want to know what the lesson is? We need to be content with our rulers. And we should not meddle with them that are given to change. There are anarchists everywhere, especially in this country. See, if we had a real country, anarchists would just be shot. If you want to talk about a new form of government, you should just be shot. Like David would have done like Nebuchadnezzar would have done, 
real authority. The Bible warns us in Proverbs chapter 24 and verses 21 and 22. Meddle not with them that are given to change. And it's talking about political change. Meddle not with them that are given to change because the calamity of both of them are coming soon. God will judge those who do not submit to authority. God has ordained authority in the world and he expects us to submit to it. And here's a warning right here. As Solomon describes all generations of men, no matter how well he did as a king, his child, the heir apparent when he takes the throne, they're not going to rejoice in him. There's going to be trouble because it was very difficult. And all you have to do is read a little bit of history to find out how long the crown endures. What does the Bible say? Is it a rhetorical question in Proverbs chapter 24? The crown does not endure to all generations. Look at what he's done. Past generation, present generation, future generation. The crown doesn't endure to all generations because it's a very fragile thing. Authority is very fragile. Solomon saw it. Solomon said, surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. We we as children want to support our fathers and our mothers. We as citizens want to support our rulers. We as church members want to support any leadership in the church. We as employees want to support our boss. We do not want to speak against authority nor make it difficult when they transition from one ruler to another. If one man leaves a company and another one's put in his place, there is a tendency on the part of all employees to expect that when that transition takes place, they're going to get treated differently than they have been treated. That is what is under consideration right here. And that is a vanity and vexation of spirit by anyone in authority. Let's make it easy for those that rule over us by being submissive to their authority, encouraging and helpful instead of difficult. Five lessons. All the oppressions that are done on earth are overwhelming without the knowledge that God is in charge and he will protect unborn babies. Number two, there is a Christian work ethic taught in chapter four, and it is neither heaping up things for yourself to be envied by others, nor being slothful. It's to be content with a modest living. Like Solomon would say in Proverbs chapter 30, don't give me poverty and don't give me riches. Give me food convenient for me in the middle. The third lesson, friendship and companions are very important. And we ought to promote them at every level because two are better than one and it gives us the reasons why. The fourth lesson, wisdom is better than folly and you better be learning it. Learn it. Young men, learn it. All you young men, learn the wisdom of Proverbs and put it into practice. Success is like picking a piece of fruit off a tree. You will not learn it in the Harvard MBA program. You can learn it right in the book of Proverbs and in this fourth lesson in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. I wish I was a young man again to go back and do it all over again with the wisdom that God's taught me later in life. I know that there's others in here that would do the very same thing. We'll show you how to work. We'll show you how to apply wisdom. But you know, we're on the, we got one foot on a banana peel. So we want you to do it. And we want you to be great in the sight of the Lord and the sight of men. And the last lesson is about authority and how difficult it is to transition from one to another. And let's learn to give tribute to whom tribute is due, honor to whom honor is due, and support those in authority, whether it's in our home, church, nation, business, or wherever it might be. May the Lord bless us with the wisdom of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. There's lots of it there. Amen.
May Jesus Christ be praised.